The scripture reading this morning is taken from Paul's letter to Titus. In this letter, we're going to read two passages. First, we're going to read together the first chapter. Here we read the Word of God as follows. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And then from there we turn ahead to chapter 2 where we begin reading at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. So far, the reading of God's Word. 
now respond to that reading and sing together in preparation for the sermon, Psalm 52, the stanzas 1, 2, and 6. text for the sermon this morning is taken from the letter of Jude. We're going to focus on verses 3 and 4, but we'll start reading at verse 1 just so we get a sense of the context. So the letter of Jude, beginning at verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And here begins our text. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, 
who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So far the text. Following the proclamation of the word, we will begin to respond by rising and singing together the six stanzas of hymn 43. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the opening verses of this letter written by Jude, they leave believers with a relatively positive feeling. God had called them out of love to be His people. God would keep them for Jesus Christ on the great day of His return. And as they would continue along the way, they would be blessed with God's mercy, His peace, and His love, not just a little bit, but having these things multiplied to them. There's a great deal of comfort in those verses, because with that being the case, what could possibly go wrong? And the truth is that ultimately nothing can go wrong. But while everything is indeed assured for those who believe, it doesn't mean that everything just nicely falls into order and place while believers just sit back and watch it all happen around them. Just because all those things found in verses 1 and 2 are true, it doesn't mean that believers just coast through to the end, pretending as though their time in this world is nothing more than an extended vacation where they enjoy the scenery. Because what we see in our text is that with verse 3, this letter takes a very sudden change in its overall mood. The greeting was all about assurance, comfort, encouragement. But now there's an intense urgency with which Jude starts to write. Here the people of God, chosen for Christ, they're again presented with the riches with which they've been entrusted. But they're also called to maintain those riches to hold fast to them and to struggle for them against different forms of opposition. In short, the lives of God's people in this world have a certain intensity about them. They're called to be aware of what's happening around them, not just in the world in which they live, but also to be aware of what's happening around them in the church. Because even there, things aren't always what they seem. I proclaim to you the Word of God this morning under the following theme, Jude calls on the believers to maintain the truth of the Christian faith. And to do this, we'll see that he, in the first place, appeals to them about contending for the faith, and secondly, that he exposes those who threaten the faith. Jude begins our text by addressing the believers as beloved. In some translations, it's rendered dear friends but that's a relatively weak translation. It doesn't capture the very deep and caring nature of the word. And there's a reason for the language that Jude uses at this point. By addressing them as beloved, 
Jude is making it clear that when he's addressing the believers, he's doing so in such a way that he sees them as God sees them. In verse 1, he'd address them as those who are beloved in God the Father. Verse 2, he'd prayed that love would be multiplied to them. And so by addressing them as beloved, Jude is showing the pastoral heart that he has for this congregation. He's going to be writing many difficult things to them. But he's not trying to come down on them as though he's somehow better sitting in an ivory tower and that he knows way more. No, he's coming alongside them because he deeply cares for these believers. He wants what's best for them. And it's out of this love that he addresses them even bluntly on difficult topics as we read in the remainder of the letter. Now, from our text, we learn that Jude originally had a different reason he wanted to write to this congregation. We read that in verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. So that's his original intent with this letter. He wanted to write to this church about their common salvation, which means he wanted to address them on the matter of what they had in Jesus Christ. He wanted to talk to them about who the Son of God was, what the Son of God had done. He wanted to write about what believers receive through the death on the cross, through which they have the forgiveness of sins. He wanted to deal with the matter of how they have new life through the resurrection of Christ. Also, what it means that their ascended Lord is seated on the right hand, at the right hand of God. And we can hardly blame Jude for wanting to write to believers about those matters, and even being very eager to do so. After all, what is there more joyful that believers have in common? What better topic of conversation for all the people of God, including us today, than what we have through our Savior? The work of Christ, all the riches and blessings of salvation that we have through Him, that's something believers should want to talk about together. That's the greatest thing we share. That's the greatest thing we have in common. That's where we find our unity. And yet, writing to the believers on this matter doesn't take place at this time. Continuing in verse 3, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And just with that, the whole intensity of this letter begins to increase. The word that Jude uses for contend, it indicates an intense struggle, one that requires complete focus and dedication. It was often used to describe athletic competitions at the time. Contending means that nothing distracts a person from attaining their goal. They have that single-minded focus, that devotion established. Contending means overcoming obstacles in place, not getting discouraged by challenges that lie ahead. 
Well, in order for such an intense effort to be exerted, the object of the contending would need to be worth it. And Jude indicates that what they are to contend for is most worth it. It's something that has the greatest value because what they need to contend for is the faith. Now, when Jude speaks about the faith in this case, he's not referring to the link that exists between Christ and His people. Or to put it differently, he's not using the definition of faith as we find it in Lord's Day 7. No, the faith in this context is referring to a set body of beliefs, all the doctrines of salvation that have been passed down to them. And it happens more often in Scripture that the faith is spoken about in this way. The Apostle Paul speaks about it often. You can think of a passage like 2 Timothy 4, verse 7, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. There's also Titus 1, verse 3, which we read earlier. Paul speaks of being sound in the faith. Well, that set body of beliefs, all those doctrines, it's something that the believers had received. It was passed down to them, delivered to them. And it means that they had been instructed in the faith, both through the prophets of the Old Testament and the teaching of the apostles in the New Testament. The word for delivered, it has the sense of being entrusted with something, being given something that you now need to keep safe. It implies a responsibility. What the believers have received is a precious gift that requires constant care and guarding. It's how the apostle also speaks about the faith in 2 Timothy 1 verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And notice what else Jews says about the faith. He says that it was once for all delivered to the saints. So the faith is not something changing. It's not something that's fluid. It was delivered once for all to the people of God. And it's actually very comforting because believers don't have to worry about some new revelation being given that would change the faith. And that's ultimately because of the content of the faith, which is centered in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Who Christ is, what He has done, that doesn't change, no matter how many years may pass by. His sacrifice has been offered on the cross, whereby He has obtained forgiveness. Our Savior confirmed it when He said those words, it is finished. Through His precious blood, all the sins and all the guilt of His people is washed away. He's restored righteousness and life. That's the faith that's been passed down from the apostles to the people of God, and that is the faith that will never, ever change. It was given to the saints in Jude's day. It's the same faith entrusted to the saints today. It's something reflected often in our worship services, leading to our confession of faith in the afternoon. We often refer to it as our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith. So this faith given to the saints, 
It's the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. It's a rich gift given by God to His people. But now it's something that requires contending. And that has aspects of both defending the faith and promoting the faith. We can work each of those out. In the first place, when we think about defending, it means that there will be those who attack the faith. They'll challenge the work that Christ has done. They'll think that something needs to be added to it. Something needs to be taken away from it. They say that his work has been interpreted in a wrong way, and so people should rethink how they understand it. Well, to contend for the faith means to defend it against such attacks. After all, the faith is not a matter of human imagination. The faith has been delivered and trusted to our care. Believers are the recipients, and one who is the recipient does not have the right to change the content in any way. But on the other hand, recognizing the value of the faith not only means defending it, but also promoting it. Think about it this way. What is there that people need more than the gospel of Jesus Christ? Contending for the faith means that we want to see the faith advance in our own lives, but also spreading among the people around us. It's a huge task. And so contending for the faith also means that it needs to be the sole focus. It's what everything revolves around without exception. But before one can contend for the faith, they first need to recognize the value of the faith. That faith, the gospel of Jesus Christ, it has to be something that resonates in them. After all, no one contends or no one engages in an intense struggle over something that they see as being of minimal value. If you want to contend for the faith, you first have to be clear what a privilege it is that you've been entrusted with it. Because as Jude makes clear, the faith is not something that's just generally given to everyone. No, he writes, it's been delivered once for all to the saints, to the people of God. And so with all that being said, brothers and sisters, we are forced to ask ourselves, how much are we engaged with contending for the faith? How busy are we with that in our lives? How much do we really value the gospel of Jesus Christ How much do we treasure the fact that we have graciously and freely received that gospel? Because we also need to think about it from this angle, namely, what is the opposite of contending for the faith? Well, if we consider that contending is a great and intense struggle, the opposite of contending is being passive towards it. Well, considering the content of the faith, namely that it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God unto salvation for those who believe, how could it ever be possible that one is passive to that gospel? 
Well, the only way is that we don't recognize the value of it, or we think lightly about what the Son of God has accomplished, or it's possible that people are passive because we think the faith is something we deserve rather than seeing it as a rich gift with which we've been entrusted. God Himself has delivered to us His gospel of grace, the knowledge of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And now having received that gift, it requires a response. Is that gift something we're busy contending for? Or is it something that we're passive towards? And Jude makes clear, there's a need for believers to be actively contending. He felt so compelled to address the church on this matter that he changed the whole topic of his writing. And this is also due to the fact that the faith was under threat from false teachers whom he exposes. We come to our second point. Right away in our text, you can sense Jude's attitude of distaste towards these false teachers. Just look at the way he refers to them in verse 4, namely as certain men. So he doesn't give them a specific identification, he just says certain men. But he doesn't want the believers to underestimate these men, because he also makes it clear that they are incredibly crafty. He writes that they have crept into the church unnoticed. Literally, he says that they've snuck in secretly. There are some whom the Lord Jesus refers to in Matthew 7, verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And likely these men were traveling preachers at the time, but now they'd settled down and become part of this particular congregation. And they had brought in a subtle attack that threatened the faith delivered to the saints also in that place. Jude describes these false teachers as ungodly people. It's his basic matter of identifying them. We find it also in verses 15 and 18. The word he uses for ungodly, it means that these men were impious. They openly violated the norms for a proper relation with God. But what made them so crafty or so sneaky is that it wasn't as though they came in and they denied God's existence with their words. They were not practical atheists saying, God doesn't exist. They would never have been able to sneak into the church unnoticed. The believers would recognize such an obvious false claim against the faith quickly. And the error these false teachers smuggled in was not even so much a doctrinal error as it was an ethical error. Jude says in verse 4, they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. And there you start to see the danger of these false teachers. The fact that they pervert the grace of God, that's a heavy accusation. 
The grace of God is at the very heart, the very center of the faith. When one perverts God's grace, it will follow that everything else about the gospel goes wrong as well. God's grace is His forgiving love and undeserved kindness granted to His people through Jesus Christ. Well, the false teachers wanted to stop with the fact that God's grace was His forgiving love and undeserved kindness. Maybe you heard the difference. Let me repeat that. God's grace is His forgiving love and undeserved kindness granted to His people through Jesus Christ. While the false teachers wanted to stop with God's grace is His forgiving love and undeserved kindness. At first we might wonder, what's so bad about that? Well, stopping with that definition, that God's grace is His forgiving love and undeserved kindness, it misses a huge part of the definition. There's a reason God shows such things. They aren't just naturally given to everyone. They're given only because of the work of Christ. By leaving their understanding of the grace of God as short as they did, the false teachers actually took out the work of Christ. It is in Christ alone that God has punished sin. Our Savior made the full payment God required. His blood was offered in our place. He died the death His people deserved. He set His people free from the curse of the law, from slavery to sin and Satan. He bought His people for Himself. Well, the false teachers, they wanted to ignore all of that because all they cared about was the fact that God shows forgiving love to His people, that God shows undeserved kindness. And since that was the only thing that mattered to them, it didn't matter how they would live afterwards. The false teacher suggested that the grace of God actually gave them the freedom to do whatever they wanted without there being any consequences. They didn't think of God's grace in terms of the fact that they are now free to serve the Lord. They thought of it in terms such as they were free to serve the God of the self, along with its sinful passions. We read of the same error in other places. We read it in Titus 1 verse 16. Paul writes about certain false teachers. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And therefore, Jude says that these false teachers, they pervert the grace of God. They take that most beautiful gift, they twist it, they manipulate it, and they change it into something that it was never meant to be. They change God's grace into a license for sensuality, according to the text. And the word that Jude uses for sensuality, it means to have a lack of self-constraint, which involves a life of conduct or a life of action that violates what is socially acceptable. And this word for sensuality, it can refer to an excess of all kinds of sin, but most often when it's used in Scripture, it refers specifically to sexual sin. So imagine that, brothers and sisters. 
these false teachers ultimately taught this message. They said, because God is gracious, because God forgives the sins of His people, they are now free to live a life filled with sexual sin. And they could do so because God's grace meant that He would automatically forgive them no matter what. He would deal kindly with them regardless. It was all good. So they said, do whatever gives you pleasure. And hopefully that sounds absolutely absurd. Hopefully it sounds like we can hardly believe that such a message would ever be proclaimed or taught. Because we know very clearly from Scripture that the grace of God was never meant to be a license to sin without being consequences afterwards. In fact, we read in Titus 2 what the grace of God was really about. Paul writes, beginning in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, listen to this, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Well, you see that contrast between what God's grace is really about and what the false teachers had turned it into. Rather than renouncing ungodliness, wanting nothing to do with ungodliness, the false teacher said, go ahead, live ungodly lives. The faith delivered to the saints was clearly being threatened. But it goes further. Because these false teachers perverted the grace of God in such a horrible way, it had direct implications for how they perceived the Lord Jesus as well. Jude says, they deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. The word that he uses for master is the Greek word despot. It's a word we still have in the English language today. A despot is an autocratic ruler who has absolute authority. There's no challenge to it. More often than not, when we think about a despot, we have a negative sense in our mind, but the word doesn't have to necessarily have that. By his blood shed on the cross, the Son of God has purchased his people for himself. By his blood, he set these people free from sin and the power of the devil. We sang of that earlier in hymn three. Because of his blood, his people belong to him entirely. Because of His blood, Jesus Christ is the only Master, and there is none other. But by teaching the people by their actions to live this life of sensuality with no self-control, with no self-constraint, the false teachers were directly telling the people, no, Jesus Christ is not your Master. Jesus Christ does not have absolute authority over you. The false teacher said, you're free. You can do what you want. God's gracious. God's going to forgive you. And they said, why bother submitting to the master when there's forgiveness anyways? And so by their lifestyle, these false teachers denied Jesus Christ as master and Lord. When we think about denying Jesus Christ, our thoughts usually go to what happened when our Lord was before the Sanhedrin, shortly before His crucifixion. Most of us know the account well, including the children here. Peter denied three times that he knew the Lord Jesus. He said, I don't know the man. He didn't want any connection with Jesus. And he went so far as to call a curse upon himself to prove it. 
Denying the Lord Jesus so openly, we can hardly believe someone would ever do so. We know it led Peter to go out to weep bitterly in sorrow because of his sin. But now we learn from our text, it's not only by words that people deny Jesus Christ as master. It's also done through actions. When people stubbornly refuse to submit their lives to his commands, they in reality deny Jesus Christ as their Lord. In effect, they say, I don't know him, and I don't recognize him as master. I'm my own master. I do what I want, and I simply trust that God will forgive me because he is gracious. That was the message brought in by the false teachers. It's not a wonder then that Jude had to appeal to the believers to contend for the faith. It was being threatened in a deep and dark manner, not through words or verbal challenges in the sense, but through a lifestyle inconsistent with the grace of God in Christ. And yet, brothers and sisters, we can't simply sit back and think about in shock what was happening then. Because you see, still today, there are false teachers who promote that same kind of thinking and that same kind of lifestyle. And sadly, they have many followers, many disciples, even among church people. There is still the danger that even though we too have received the gospel of grace, that faith handed down to the saints, we still fall prey to the thinking of those false teachers. And of course, we would never publicly say it. But if we're honest, there is something incredibly attractive about being able to believe in Jesus Christ, looking forward to eternal life, but at the same time, to live according to the desires of our sinful flesh in the present, not having to worry about that daily struggle of crucifying the old nature and saying no to temptation. To put it this way, there's a certain attractiveness to having Jesus Christ as master in the future, but being our own master in the present. That seems to be the best of both worlds. The false teachers sneak in, and they say, yes, you can combine those two. You can combine faith in Christ and a worldly lifestyle. And note again how they pervert the grace of God into sensuality, focusing on sexual sin. There's a reason why that's the focus. It's because Satan has used this many times as an inroad into people's lives throughout history, including people in the church. This is not something that he suddenly came up with as a new strategy in Jude's time. You can think back to the Old Testament before Israel entered the promised land. Balak, king of Moab, he wanted a curse placed on Israel. Balaam was unable to do so because the Lord protected his people. But immediately after this, the people of Israel went out and they committed sexual sin with the people of Moab. And they weren't doing this because they suddenly believed that the Lord their God didn't exist. No, this was all about compromising, serving the Lord, but also serving Moabite gods 
so that they were free to enjoy sexual pleasures beyond what God had given to husband and wife. And just as Israel was not immune from the temptation and the lure of sexual sin, so it is with us as well. It goes without saying. We live in a world saturated by sexuality, a world in which sexuality is promoted in such a way that it all comes down to you do whatever you feel right, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. The world doesn't teach self-control. It doesn't promote self-constraint. No, the world says it's all up to you. There's few, if any, limitations. Whether you're married, unmarried, it doesn't matter. As long as no one else gets hurt, do what feels right, because if it feels right, it can't be wrong. And again, that's the world's teaching. But do we think that we are somehow immune from that attitude? We know what God says in His Word. We know how God has given this beautiful gift to husband and wife in marriage. But how often don't we, too, try to blur some lines? Or how often don't we even obliterate the lines if it's more convenient for us at the moment. And even so, we would never say that God doesn't exist. But like the men who snuck into the church in Jude's time, the thinking sneaks into our minds in such a way that God's grace becomes cheap. I can do what I want, not what the Master in heaven requires, because in the end, God is gracious God's going to forgive my sin, whether that's sexual or otherwise. And when that's our thinking, we are actually no different than Peter, who denied the Lord with his words. By taking the grace of God as something for granted or something cheap, we are guilty of denying Christ as master by our actions. The false teacher said, this combination of faith in Christ and a worldly lifestyle, that's possible. The Word of God directly refutes that claim. Jesus Christ did not make His people His own with the goal that they could just lose all self-control, that they didn't have to have self-restraint. He didn't set them free so that they could now go do whatever they wanted. No, He bought them with His blood. He took ownership of them. He brought them to Himself so that they might live for Him. He is their Master, the only Sovereign and Lord of their lives. We read in Titus 2 verse 14, the Son of God gave Himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. And therefore, Jude also warns the church how they ought to think about these false teachers who have snuck into their midst. He says, rather than embracing their teaching, he writes about them in verse 4 saying, no, 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 this is not the way of life. This is not the way of blessing. He says they were long ago designated for this condemnation. And there's some different thoughts as to what Jude means by this. Literally, he says their condemnation or their judgment was written about long ago. So the question is, which writing is he referring to? Some have suggested that Jude is referring to what is written in certain heavenly books, 
books that outline the plan God has determined. Others suggest it's writing that's not included in Scripture, a writing that he actually references later on in this letter. But the most likely meaning is that Jude is referring to the judgment of those who snuck into the church and tried to harm it in the Old Testament. Look at the men he speaks about just a few verses later. Men like Cain, Balaam, Korah. They too were guilty of rebelling against God's authority. They paid for their rebellion. Their judgment is well accounted for. So just as God punished those who denied his authority in the past, so he would do so in the present. Jude says they're not going to get away with their deliberate rebellion against the only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And so with all that, it's not a wonder that Jude tells the believers, contend for the faith. Struggle for it. Be devoted to it. The dangers that threaten the faith are there. They will not go away on this side of eternity. The matters that the believers in Jude's time had to deal with, they haven't changed all that much. As the teacher says in Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun. And so believers are encouraged and motivated to contend for the faith because that is where they find salvation That's the contrast Jude makes clear. Believers share in the common salvation. But on the other hand, the condemnation of false teachers was written about long ago, and it's one or it's the other. It's by entrusting ourselves to the care of the Master who bought us with His blood. That is where we find forgiveness of our sins. It is by living for the Master who loves us, submitting to His will for our lives. That is where we find happiness and joy. Because while the condemnation of the false teachers was written about long ago, so also was the promise of salvation for those who believe. It was the promise of God made immediately after the fall into sin, the promise of redemption. And that's the faith which has been delivered to us and trusted to our care. That's the faith for which we are called to contend, doing so because it is most precious to us. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the most valuable thing a person can possess. And by God's grace, it's been entrusted to us, or to make this more personal, it's been entrusted to you as well, so that each one may focus our eyes of faith solely on the Savior, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. And because of Him, because of His love for His people, surrounded by that great cloud of witnesses who has gone before us, contending for the faith, which means forgetting the things behind, focusing on what lies ahead, we press on to God's right hand, there with the Savior and His saints, triumphantly to stand. Amen.